You're listening to Broke. We bring you stories about what happens at the intersection of poverty and life. I'm Joanne Goldblum. I've spent my life working with people in poverty. I'm joined by my friend, Colleen Shaddix, a journalist whose beat is social justice. Today, we're going to focus on how COVID-19 is exacerbating food insecurity in the U.S. and how one community is handling that. Exacerbating is the right word, Joanne. When we talk about the economic pain caused by COVID, it's important to remember that many U.S. Americans were already living in poverty and still more were close to the edge. 35 million of us experienced food insecurity last year. Feeding America estimates that an additional 17 million may be hungry this year because of the pandemic. It's so upsetting, Colleen. Um, Indeed. You know, and I know we talk about this every time, but my God, we're the richest country in the world. And we have millions and millions of people struggling to eat. Um, you know, as we also talk about every every time, um, you know, I run the National Diaper Bank Network and the Alliance for Period Supplies. And even before COVID, they didn't have the resources to meet the need. And what we've heard over and over again is that every single diaper bank has seen the need increase by at least 50%. And many have seen an increase of over 400 percent. You know, I have to imagine that um, emergency food programs are in a similar or if, if not more difficult spot. Yes, that's very true. I spoke with a woman named Betty Wiggins, who's the Officer of Nutrition Services for the Houston Independent School District. Um, on a good day, Betty was feeding a lot of children who experienced food insecurity at home. But when the pandemic hit, the number of kids in need increased dramatically, and so did the number of adults in need. And Betty made it her mission to try to feed everybody. Um, Let's have a little listen to what Betty has to say. Excellent. When we found out about the closure of our schools due to the, uh, the, the pandemic, it was the day before we were going out on spring break and we had no food in our cupboards because when we go out on spring break, we, we dispense with all our perishable food. So the superintendent called us and said, you know, how, how are we going to feed our kids? I said, well, superintendent, we have no food, but, you know, it does no good to feed the kids if we're not feeding the families. So we immediately thought about who has food to feed the families, and we and it was a food bank. So within a fifteen, I'm honestly telling you, Colleen, this was a fifteen-minute meeting mm. that we got everything together <laughs> in fifteen minutes. That they had, they had. And this was on a Friday afternoon. By Saturday morning at eight o'clock, we had two food bank trucks out on one of our large. Uh, high schools parking lot through communications we had did an outreach to the community and by eight o'clock that morning we had 900 cars around Chavez High School we had we had we were so it was so disjointed that we didn't have bags or anything to put the food in we had people bringing their own bags and laundry laundry bags and any kind of bags they had 
because we were making up the boxes on the spot. And it was everybody, in, everybody in HISD. The superintendent was there, wraparound services there, area soups were there, uh, uh, communications was there trying to coordinate uh, all the all the PR because the because the TV stations just not could could not believe that HISD had put this together in in such I mean less than 24 hours and we were all there and, and this is just the advent of the virus before they are start talking about social distancing and masks and everything so we're out there just creating boxes of, of food and you know, quickly surveying how much food we had. And, okay, here's the vegetables over here. Here's the meats over here. Here's the this and here's the that. And putting together a, a 30-pound food boxes that was food box that was in need and did 900 cars that, that day that wow. we ran out. We ran out. And this was a Saturday morning, and we started about 9 o'clock that morning. We had walk-ups. We had not only automobiles, but we had walk-ups. And that's the whole thing about when you start doing these, uh, these, these food distributions, and everybody's talking about, oh, they, they came by, you hit the trunk and uh, you put the food in. No, there are people who are getting off of public transportation. There are people walking up with baby strollers where they're putting the box on the back, that 40 pound box on the back of the baby stroller. There are people walking up with wagons. I had one school here in in in, um, in in Houston where I had to talk to the supermarket across the street because people were taking all of his grocery carts and coming across the street to my food distribution. So they had a way to take the food home because there was so much weight or, you know, you see this. Long, oh, gosh, I almost cried now. Uh, you see this long line of of, of a mother, you see a young mother with these children, you know, anywhere from seven, eight, and they all they all putting something in their arms because they have no transportation because they have no trunk, and and the and the nature and the types of foods we're we're giving away lends itself to having some sort of transportation because you can't not carry it in your arms. You have to have some way to transport it, but. Poor people are very resilient and people in need are very resilient. And I mean, if we some of the pictures we could show you. But as, the thing, as, as it went on, we started and the virus and the outbreak started uh, becoming more obvious that we really did have a pandemic on our hands. We had a scare. And when we had that scare, we had to stop and regroup and find out how we were going to better serve people. And so we finally said, hey, we got this big manufacturing plan over here. In HISD, so we started assembling our own meal boxes using product that we got from uh, the uh, the food bank, as well as our own product. Because you know, I'm a I'm a major HISD is a major um, food service program. When we're in session, we serve about a quarter million meals a day. So I had a major warehouse and I and I and I got I received deliveries from vendors in truckload quantities. Well, if I had no kids for some of this food that I already had on my shelves and in my freezers to give, it would start to expire. Some of it was government food. So so here again, you know, you give credit where credit is due. Uh, The Texas Department of Education allowed me to transfer the title of some of that school food commodities over to TFAP. And by doing that, uh, the food bank was allowed me to distribute it without it even leaving my warehouse. 
So, you know, there, huh? I'm sorry to minute or interrupt you. Um, there are two things that really strike me about that story, even more so than just the feat of pulling it off. Was a we're talking about March, so the food insecurity you were seeing wasn't necessarily a result of the pandemic. It was life for the well, people that you're serving. You got to understand, I'm 87%. My poverty level is 87%. I'm 100% CEP. When I said I feed, I feed a quarter million meals a day, that means just about, that's means just about every kid yep. in my district is coming and getting the meal. So yeah, it's very real. And that's what I was telling the superintendent. I mean, it's really nice to get little Johnny a meal. But when you go to little Johnny's house and you knock on that door, you see generations of poverty and hunger and food insecurity and disease and unemployment and just a whole lot of things that that make uh, living in that kind of situation desperate. I mean, there are some des- there are some desperate households. I'm not saying everybody in Houston was desperate, but at that immediate moment, you were right. When you cut off school meals, you cut off a valuable source of nutrition for that family and keep focusing on the family. Just don't focus on the kid because it's the family that sends us that hungry child. And so, that's that's mm-hmm. actually the other thing that, that struck me so much was you didn't debate whether or not you needed to help entire families. You figured out how to do that. That was never a question mark. And, and talk a little bit about the school reaching out to the whole community, the whole family, not just school children. Oh, I have to, you know, and I have to, I have to give our superintendent credit for that. And I give her credit for that, that we had an office called the Wraparound Services Office. And the purpose of the Wraparound Services Office was to provide services for the student, which involved the family so you can better educate the kids, so you can put the kid in a better, in a better educational opportunity. So we started talking about that. So I had, so my best partner was um, the me, my most immediate partner was uh, our director of um, uh, community relations and outreach in the wraparound service office. She and I immediately found a little tree to work under and started mapping out a plan of who she was going to contact, what we were going to contact, what were we going to do in order to get food in order to, so she's reaching out to the YMCA. She's reaching out to whoever she can in order to help us aggregate and the word is aggregate you know how much food we have to aggregate here in houston the no, feed, the numbers that we have i mean tractor trailer doesn't mean anything to me you got to talk in terms of two and three tractor trailers <laughs> to just meet some of the needs uh, uh, of our of our sites um so that's what we did so when we finally figured it out and recognize that we needed some not-for-profit partners as well as using the resources that HISD had, which is refrigerated trucks, which is a warehouse, which are trained people who are used to serving large number of people. We could not do it effectively with volunteers. And then the willingness of our district to use some of our CARES Act money to support my staff as we as we were doing that as we were trying to feed the community and then also using my own fund balance within my department to support our staff this is not this is this is a costly uh endeavor and it takes a real commitment from our school district to ensure this is happening 
Wow, that is that is powerful, Colleen. Mm. Um, you know, one thing that I was I was really struck by, and and you you mentioned this sort of in the intro, is you know we're not just talking about kids, and, and I think one thing that people often forget is that school feeding programs really support families, not just children. And you know, Betty says out loud what so many of us believe, you know, kids thrive when their families thrive. And when families aren't thriving, it's really tough for kids to thrive. Right. We know that parents tend to do with less food themselves when there's food insecurity in the house. Yeah. And and one thing that school nutrition programs do is like, okay, if, if my kid is getting breakfast and lunch at school, I can be a little more generous with myself at home, mm-hmm. but when when the school lunch program goes away, um, that ends. Right, and I was also really struck, um, both in listening to her and in reading about this, how many hoops the school systems have to jump through to, to use this program in the way they're using it now. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, Betty is obviously a a master at making the system do the most it possibly can. But one of the reasons she's able to do what she's doing right now is these programs that she's operating are really considered summer nutrition programs. Mm -hmm. Like we do at camps during the summer. So the kids who really need school lunch are still getting it. Um, And what that does is it allows her to deliver food to different places outside of the school system. Mm -hmm. It allows some flexibility on making people qualify and, you know, vast amounts of red tape and paperwork. And that waiver ends December 31st. Oh, my God. Um, The pandemic will not. So um, let's, let's listen to Betty talk about that a little bit. Excellent. Thanks. As we approach into next year, we need for our Congress people, when they started to talk, to understand that 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 the waiver they gave us for nine congregate feeding for the summer feeding program needs to be permanent. Mm-hmm. Needs to be permanent. I'm not asking them to change anything in school lunch or school breakfast or outside of school hours or any of those other programs we have. We need to have the permanent waiver or permanent that that summer feeding is not required non-congregate feeding. Because one of the programs you see that's the most underused program is the summer feeding program. And that's because they complicate access by requiring you to have that congregated setting. It is not designed for parks and recs programs. That is the reason it is not as successful as it should be. People in parks and recs teach kids how to jump rope and swim. People in child nutrition feed folks and feed folks healthily in a healthy kind of way. You understand that is not the first priority of parks and recs in the summertime is to feed kids. But that's my priority year round because hunger does not take a vacation. I want our listeners to know to know that those school lunch ladies or school lunch dudes are performing Herculean tasks. If you want to talk about essential workers, we never stopped. 
We never stop like we didn't do in Houston. We really care about our kids. And before we had all this PPE and masks and all that stuff, we were putting ourselves at risk to service our children. Creative business people, because you understand uh, my budget is not financed by education dollars. I am a not-for-profit business within the food service, uh, within the school district. So I, I need regulations or I need a regulation review that does not hamper me from feeding hungry kids or feeding kids who are food insecure. Everybody, even the kids at the end of the cul-de-sac now are food insecure. So I need your listeners to know anything that they could do in informing the policymakers that we need a permanent waiver for the summer food service program. And we also need a raise. I I have, you know, I I can't go out and tell my customer, you know what, my costs went up. So I'm going to raise your meals, uh, 25 cents a meal. I get a customer, I get a CPI. That's the only raise we've gotten over the last seven, 10 years, the CPI. Uh, you know, consumer price index, which is about one and a half or two percent. Start treating this program like it has value and it is seen as a way of supporting education. We're not included in the CARES Act. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and, and so with this HERO Act that's now in Congress, I understand there's some money uh, in there for child nutrition, but child nutrition is not going to go away. A bunch of a bunch of us, whether we had free lunch or we had paid lunch, through our formative years, were impacted by those school lunch ladies, who continue to feed us, whether we're in school or we're standing out on the driveway or on a playground. So that's what I want people to know. Does Betty want to extend this work beyond the pandemic? Absolutely. She understands that you have to feed a whole family. Feeding one member of a family is not a solution. Um, and she's, you know, she's developing these really innovative programs that are that are working great. Um, and it would be a shame to say goodbye to them. Last week, through those 25 apartment buildings, we served over 35,000 meals. So that's a new, that's a new, um, avenue where Mm -hmm. kids have to be served Mm -hmm. and it's interesting that was was, again something that came from the desk of the educators that said hey we got these virtual learners out here in these apartment buildings while they got them hot spots and all that they don't have any food so it's not to distract them to go hunt for food (laughs) you know hunters and gatherers so they don't have to go out and hunt for food can you go to their residential location and set up shop. And we do. So between 1 and 3 p.m. and listen, and then we even had to change our hours of service because generally they say, oh, oh, between 10 and 1, we're, we're going to serve meals. No, no, that's for us. That makes our day easy. We do 2 to 6, 1 to 3, 2 to 5. So even if so, if there's some working parents out there, they have a chance to pick up meals for their kids on their way home. The, and and two to and one to three is when we do the apartment buildings because we feel like those virtual learners have been on their computers, been engaged, and they need that break so they can go down one to three and pick up their food. So I don't do I don't do anything you know early in the morning. Do you feel like this is a model that could be used going forward for families that live in food deserts? 
You know, I'm going to tell you something. It's not, it, it is a model, but it's a model. You also understand I'm from Detroit, right? And, no, I didn't know. Oh, you didn't know. <laughs> I was a food service director in Detroit for uh, eight years. And HISD recruited me to Houston three years ago. And if you want to talk about food insecurity and food deserts and everything, these were some of the elements that I had tried out in Detroit. But, I, but I've gotten them down to a science here in, in Houston. It is a model. It is a model in terms of how we also state uh, feeding policy for families. This child nutrition program is one of the strongest webs in the social service safety net. The strong one, the strongest webs as a service provider in our food system. And so we've had rules and stuff on the books for years that this pandemic has shown how they need to be modified. And one of the strongest programs we have, even more stronger than the school lunch or school uh, breakfast program, is the summer feeding program because of the flexibility it has. It was designed to be serving kids when school was not in session, but it had so many craziness, like you could deserve a kid unless there's a recreational activity. Well, hunger doesn't take a vacation. So now we're demonstrating that we do need that non-congregate ability, that I do need to roll my truck up onto that uh, parking lot of that housing popula- uh, housing complex. And the kids see me, you know, you want to see a site just to see our big white truck roll up and see the kids come out of the apartment. The food ladies are here. The food ladies are here. And and have them stand in line, no problem. And even with some areas of the city that do pose a security threat, I have a police escort so that, that, that we're there and we feel safe. But And those kids, those kids don't feel safe enough to go outside of their housing complex but they do feel safe enough to stay on that footprint of that housing complex. And, and we've had, you know, we've had, and, and we don't have, and the safety issues are not around our personal safety. It's that people who we can't feed are trying to get us to feed them. Yep. So, I mean, there's, you know, there, there is a real food insecurity problem in this nation. And what we're demonstrating now is that we have to go where the people are, because A, they have no transportation. You and I would live, we're, if we live, I live in a suburb, and I would be in a food desert if I didn't have that car that allowed me to get on the overpass, mix up in the spaghetti bowl, and go find Kroger's and HUB and all those other uh, places that are available. I live in a food desert. I can't get a loaf of bread within four miles of my house mm-hmm. unless I have transportation. And then the other thing that happens is the quality of the food that the people have available to them. They would not. I'm really proud of what we're putting in these food baskets in terms of fresh fruits and vegetables and lean meats. And, you know, you know, you know, you talk about um, and I I get excited. So you kind of funnel me down. Go ahead. the idea I'm giving away, I'm, I'm, I'm right right now. and And I'm sorry about the word giveaway. I'm distributing half gallons of milk. Uh-huh. As opposed to the little bitty cartons, mm-hmm. because we're doing multiple day distributions. So we have to plan. How can you effectively if I'm supposed to be giving a kid uh, a half a gallon of milk uh, uh, every 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 other day? I'm not doing an eight ounce cartons. I'm not, you know, right. I'm going to do right. it in a half a gallon container. And just so happens, maybe granny in that house. will, you know. 
drink a cup. Mm -hmm. We can't worry about stuff like that. Because I tell you that anyone who will line up for four and a half hours in a car in Texas heat to get 40 pounds of milk and two half, uh, 40 pounds of food and two half gallons of milk, there's a need somewhere in that. Do you want to talk a little bit about what, what our listeners can do? Yep. There is, there is actually quite a lot that you can do. Mm -hmm. Um, That waiver for the summer meal program is going to expire at the end of 2020 and Mm. funding that went with it is going to expire. Really? Call your member of Congress and Mm -hmm. you can say, it's very important to me that the summer meal program be extended at least for the length of the pandemic and that it be fully funded. Right. And fully funded is really important because one thing that happens, and I think people don't notice it all the time, is that um, politicians in an, in an effort to look good will um, extend something but not fund it yeah. or will approve something but not fund it. And extending this waiver without funding, I mean, is that even useful? It would be a little bit useful because it would uh, give school districts the freedom to feed kids at other sites, mm-hmm. but they would have to get funding from the community right? to then, you know, provide those meals. And, you know, as you well know, nonprofits are all asking for extra money right now because the need is so great. Mm-hmm. We can't have events that traditionally raise money for us. And, right. you know, some of the folks who were supporting us in the past may now need help themselves. That so- is a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's a great point. And I think another thing that people can do is to to look at how the food school food workers in your community are paid. You know, like you said before, often they work for a vendor. Um, but, you know, I think it's safe to say that you and I believe, and we hope that people listening to this do, that it's the responsibility of every parent whose child is being fed to make sure that the people doing that feeding can afford their own food. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's actually, I'll just say, Colleen, it's sad to me that we have to say that. I know. Um, you know, hiring vendors is actually a good way around Mm-hmm. decent employment practices because yeah. you can just say, well, we, you know, we have a contract. We spend $800,000 a year doing this and I don't know how the vendor right. splits it up. Well, you need to know. Exactly. And that stuff is all public, right? Yes, it is. You can get a, you can get a hold of those contracts. They're in the board of education office. Right. So you just have to ask for them. So I think that that's, that's a really, really important thing. And, and I think another thing, and again, I, I sort of hate that this is one of the answers. If you can support your local food bank, support, um, you know, your local diaper bank, make sure that people in your community have what they need. Yep. Um, yeah. And I, you know, Sometimes there is this tension between people who want to give direct aid right away mm-hmm. and people who want to change the system. Right. I have never felt that. I have always felt that when I support direct aid, either by you know the work I do or by how I spend my charitable dollars, what I'm saying is 
this is the way the world should be. I, I agree. Them what they need. Right. And I then mean, I go work on the policy too. Like it's not an either or, it's a both. Well, I think that's a really good point. You know, people often say to me about my work, well, isn't that just a Band-Aid? And the fact is, it's not. I mean, you know, first off, yeah, if someone's bleeding, they want a Band-Aid. I'm a big proponent of that. Mm-hmm. But more than that, they they don't, it's not one or the other, like you're saying. Um, you know, Changing policy takes time, yep. and you need to feed people in the meantime. You absolutely do. Yeah, you absolutely do. They're yeah. neither one of them can be left aside. They're both your responsibility. Exactly. All right. Well, we've scolded the world. Let's wrap up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Broke. Do you have a story to tell about how poverty is affecting your health? We want to hear from you. Send us an email at AmericanBroke at gmail.com. Thanks, Joanne. Thanks, Colleen. Have a great day.